be a knockoff Chinese souvenir store. The, uh, everywhere in the world, the souvenirs are even made in China. And so I go into this shop, and I'm a couple aisles over from the door, and these two guys walk in, and they walk to the back, and they call the shopkeeper out in English. And can I confess that sometimes when I'm overseas and I haven't heard anybody speak in English for a while, I start to listen in on their conversation. Anybody else? I'm the only one. Okay. Uh, I'm the only one that, that has that particular problem. Okay, so I start listening in on the conversation, and pretty quickly the conversation took a turn. And I realized that what they were doing was brokering a deal to purchase two kids for the evening. A little boy and a little girl, eight, ten years old. And I'm standing in this shop absolutely wrecked. Not sure what to do. Do I start a fight? I don't know if you've noticed. I'm not a big guy. There's three of them. There's one of me. I'm in a foreign country. I run out in the street. I find Jennifer. We search for police in the neighborhood. There are no police in this neighborhood. And I was later told that's probably because they know what's going on there. And they're paid not to get involved. And it broke us. We had this grand trip planned and over a year left to travel. And so we continued our trip, but we continued it with open eyes. You see, I believe God used that moment to open our eyes to the needs of people and to the hopelessness of people. Like I said a minute ago, we didn't expect to be missionaries. We started out in little Southern Baptist churches in Mississippi. We never met missionaries. We never heard missionaries speak. We thought they all like grew up and lived a perfect life and had the perfect education and the perfect family and the perfect whatever, and they looked great in grass skirts, so they went and moved to Ethiopia and lived in a mud hut somewhere. That's what we thought. But then all of a sudden, God begins to open our eyes to the needs of people we can't let it go. We go up into Thailand and Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam and we see more of the same. We continue on to the country of Nepal, a small Himalayan nation that sits sort of on top of India between India and Tibet. It's almost all covered in mountains and that's why we went. We thought, you know, it would be a good idea for two kids that grew up in Mississippi to fly to Nepal and hike to Mount Everest base camp. We're in the best shape of our lives. We're like young 20s. Let's do this, right? And we fly to Nepal, and we get on another little plane that takes us into the mountains, and we start to hike that same day. And a few days in, we realize something is wrong. We get altitude sickness. Turns out living in Mississippi your whole life does not prepare you for high altitudes. How were we to know? We get altitude sickness, and we have to get off the mountain to get better. And so when we do, we have almost a month left in the country. We open up our little Lonely Planet guidebook, because we didn't have Google back then. We didn't even have a phone with us. And we open our guidebook, and we find there's a little town called Pokhara that sits in a valley almost at sea level, step one. It's surrounded by big, beautiful snow-capped mountains. All right, we'll take it. Big, beautiful lake, and it's coined as like the most relaxing place to go in Nepal. So we're like, all right. We jump on a bus. It was the worst bus journey of our lives. But we got there. And one morning, we're walking to breakfast, and Jennifer sees a sign for an orphanage pointing up a street. And just kind of nonchalantly says, hey, you know, why, why don't, after breakfast, we don't have anything else to do. 
why don't we wander up and see if we could volunteer for the day? And so we go and we eat our eggs and bacon and then we walk back and we go up this street and we end up at this orphanage called Rainbow and we go inside and we ask the owners, can we volunteer? And they put us to work, like peeling potatoes, cutting vegetables, you know, first timers jobs in an orphanage. They can't trust you with much else at that point. And, uh, and so later on that day, these kids come home from school and we fell in love with these kids. And we ended up there almost for the next month volunteering every day. When the kids came home, we'd help to do uh, cooking and we'd help to do cleaning and we'd help with schoolwork and we'd play with the kids. Mostly we'd just play with the kids. And we did that for almost a month. And during this month, God had us fall in love in particular with a little boy named Sagar, who was four, and a little girl named Asha, who was eight. Sagar and Asha were incredible. But I don't want you to miss one thing. You see, in Bali, Indonesia, there's a little boy and a little girl that we couldn't help. And I believe that God led us to a little boy and a little girl in Nepal that we could help. Because God has a plan for redemption for our lives. Like whatever we've messed up on or missed out on, whatever mistakes we've made in our past, whatever things are, are, are still clinging to our back as we try to walk away from them, Whatever's in your rearview mirror, God has a plan to redeem it, church. Isn't he good? God has a plan to redeem it. But then he has something bigger in mind as well. You see, we continued our travels for almost another year around the world. We decided to sponsor Sagar and Asha in their orphanage and help to pay for their school and, and everything that they needed. We were able to give them Bibles and take them to church and, and, and really just establish a relationship while we were there. And then we travel and we run out of money, so we come home. What do you do when you're out of money? You go find a job, right? And so we found jobs in Missouri. We moved from Mississippi to Missouri. We were trying to get north, you guys, right? Trying to get out of the heat. And uh, we moved to Missouri, and Jennifer has a master's in public health. She's working in, uh, as executive director of a public health program. I'm working as a therapist, working with kids. I have a master's in counseling. And so we thought, okay, this is it. Like, this is our life. We're going to work. We're going to make money. We're going to have a great house. We're going to have great cars. We started to buy all that stuff. We're going to have like 2.5 kids, a boy and a girl, and I don't know what the point five is, maybe a dog. And, and it all started coming. It all started happening. But God was still nagging at us. God was still in the background somewhere, tapping us on the shoulder, whispering in our ear, saying, there's something more, there's something else that you're meant to do. And so we started going to this church called High Street Baptist Church. And High Street is an independent Baptist church that supports over 100 missionaries, about 150 missionaries a month all over the world. And so missionaries are constantly coming in and speaking. And so we started to hear missions it started to soak in because we knew the people and places that they were talking about. It broke our hearts. And in 2012, we got to lead our first mission team to Nepal from High Street. And we go there and we're serving among these people and these kids and these orphanages that we're supporting. And during this trip, I get on the rooftop of the hotel and I cry out to God. And I say, God, whatever it is you want me to do, the answer is yes. 
Wherever you want me to go, the answer's yes. And whatever you want me to give, the answer's yes. It's a scary prayer. I had no idea what it meant. I thought it meant just make more money, give more money, that'll be great. <laughs> and God had another plan. So we get back home and we began to give more financially. We get friends to start giving more financially. Before long, we were fully supporting an orphanage with about 30 kids, us and a group of friends. So God took it from a little boy and girl in Bali, Indonesia that we couldn't help to a little boy and girl in Nepal that we could help to a whole orphanage full of kids that we could help to make sure that they didn't end up in the same situation that the little boy and girl in Bali were in. You see, God has plans for redemption for our lives, but He also has plans to do greater and more than we could ever ask or think. But that's not the end. I continue to feel God calling us to do more. Jennifer continues to feel God calling us to do more. And so at the end of uh, 2014, beginning of 2015, I fly back to Nepal. Our kids are babies, so Jennifer stays home. I fly back to Nepal to try to figure this thing out. What are we supposed to do next, God? I go into our orphanage that we're supporting there, and they've been hosting Bible studies every night of the week, and these kids are leading music, and they're teaching the Bible, and they're learning the Bible. And 30-something kids at this point have come to faith in Jesus out of Hinduism and Buddhism. <laughs> but not only that, because these kids saw their command in the Bible to go be missionaries, and they were telling their friends at school about Jesus. They were telling their teachers about Jesus. Their friends and their teachers and their friends' families began to get saved. And at that time, about 40 families had come to faith in Christ through an orphanage in Nepal. There are a bunch of kids that most of us would consider among the least of these, right? And I saw this playing out and I thought, how do we multiply this? And so I ended up, I believe God woke me up in the middle of the night one night, and I took out a little piece of paper, and I started writing what became a nonprofit business plan with uh, three steps. Everything, you got to have a three-part plan, right? Lift kids out of poverty, inject the gospel into their lives, and send them out as little missionaries. Three-part plan. Great, easy, simple, perfect. I make it home and I present it to Jennifer and we realize that we have no idea how to do any of these parts of this plan. And so we get a board of directors around us to help us. We make the plan better. We send it into the U.S. government. Everybody told us one year to get approval for your 501c3 status. We're like, great, that'll give us a little while to figure out what we're going to do. We send in our paperwork and one month later we get an envelope in the mail. Looks official. Let me ask you something. Who here has had the United States government do anything for you in one month before other than tax you? Raise your hand. <laughs> My little guy raises his hand. He knows what's coming. We open the letter. It's, <laughs> it's the government telling us your 501c3 status has been approved in one month. Like, get to work. And we're like, we don't know what to do. And we're praying to God, and we're crying out to God, and asking Him, what do we do? And the very next month, one month later, we get the answer. Massive earthquakes hit the center of Nepal in April 2015. Biggest destruction, biggest disaster to happen there in almost 100 years. You think God had a plan? You think He had a purpose for that one-month quick turnaround? <laughs> yeah, I think so. 
We took that as God giving us that, you know, like eternal nudge in the right direction. And so we started to mass spam a bunch of pastors. And some pastors started sending money, which was crazy and cool. And we began to send finances and we began to send teams up into villages that were once closed to the gospel, but now because they were in such desperate physical need, we were able to reach them. We were able to go in and preach and teach among unreached people groups and share the gospel. I fly back to Nepal. I preach my first sermon on the side of a hill to a people who are an unreached people group, no access to the gospel, in a language... It's not my own. I'm speaking English. They don't understand anything I'm saying. So I get one of our boys to stand beside me that grew up in our orphanage, came to faith in our orphanage, learned English in our orphanage, and translated the first sermon to this unreached people group. I make it home absolutely on fire. Like, I don't know what we're supposed to do with this, but I'm ready to give it all. And I asked my pastor what to do, and he introduces me to Bruce O'Neill, who founded Manna Worldwide. He said, this is my friend who founded Manna Worldwide in 2001. They've been doing basically the same work that you want to do for a lot of years, and maybe he'll advise you on what to do next with your nonprofit. And I'm like, I need all the advice I can get. Great. I sit down with Bruce, and I tell him our story, basically the story I just told you. And I said, Bruce, I'm all in, but I have no idea what that means help. And he said, last month when you were in Nepal preaching your first sermon on that hillside, Manna was decided to take on an assistant director for Asia, specifically looking for somebody with contacts among Hindu people in Nepal or India. Do you happen to know anybody? <laughs> I'm a little slow, but not that slow. So I kind of looked across the table like, uh, yeah, I mean... I'll pray about it, because that's the Christian thing to say. When someone scares you to death with some challenge, when God scares you to death with a challenge, you say, I'll pray about it. And what that really means often is probably not, <laughs> right? It's probably not going to happen. I'll pray about it. I'll eventually find some reason that I shouldn't do it. <laughs> we started to pray about it, and a few months later, God was confirming and confirming and confirming. And so we said, yes. It turns out that God was preparing us all along because we needed to sell a house and a car and a bunch of stuff, and we needed to begin to travel around the United States and around the world. Sounds familiar, right? Turns out God was preparing us. We do that. We begin to travel. We raise 100% of our family support to be missionaries. So we have businesses and churches and individuals around the country who support us financially every month. That was nerve-wracking, giving up the salaried jobs. But God provided, and He continues to provide. And we join with Manna Worldwide as assistant directors for Asia. And, and what we do is we travel around the United States. We get to speak in churches like this one. We get to share with people how to get involved in missions, how to take steps of faith towards whatever God is calling and commanding you towards. We get to motivate people. We get to lead mission trips back and forth overseas. We're actually supposed to be leading a trip to Mongolia with you guys and a group of others in September, two months from now, sad day, something happened, I don't remember what, but it's slowing us down. <laughs> and so we lead these mission trips, we travel around the country, we 
ask people to get involved, to partner with us, to make these projects happen. We partner churches with specific projects around the world that are led by missionaries and pastors that are there full time. They either have a church or we help them to plant a church. And then we say, what is it in your community that would most grab uh, people's hearts and connect with people and help you to get to see and know and, and build relationships with people so you can share the gospel with them. And so in some places it's orphanages, in some places it's nutrition centers and schools and medical clinics and digging water wells. And if you'll see up there on the screen, it says anti-child trafficking projects, I believe. You see, God took us to uh, see a couple kids in Bali, Indonesia that we couldn't help, to a couple kids in Nepal that we could help, to a whole orphanage full of kids that we could help, to a bunch of villages full of kids that we could help with our nonprofit, to stepping into Mana Worldwide as full-time missionaries, to work with an organization that works in 50 countries around the world, about 235 different ongoing projects, making sure almost 20,000 kids per day, don't end up in the same situation that those kids in Bali were in. And see, God has plans to redeem whatever we've messed up on or missed out on, but He has plans to do, uh, Ephesians 3.20 reminds us, exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to His power, according to the power that resides within us through the Holy Spirit. Come on. God has a plan for your life, church. And yet still, we... Oh, I'm not pushing the button hard enough, I think. All right. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Uh, yet still, we have people come up to our table when we speak at churches, and they ask us, why Asia? And so I want to make sure I paint this picture of why Asia. First of all, God called us while we were in Asia. God opened our hearts to people and showed us the hopelessness within Asia. So some other reasons why Asia is because 70% of malnourished kids in the world live in Asia. Uh, 70%. About 87% of the unreached people groups in the world are in Asia. And that's people groups that don't have a church down the street that they could go to if they wanted to. Don't have a person next door that could tell them about Jesus. Don't have a pastor that they could call. Though it's getting easier because of social media and, and internet usage these days. 87%. Every 90 seconds or so a child dies as a result of drinking unclean water. Many of those are in Asia. And right now as I stand before you this morning, it's evening in Asia. And over 20 million children are going to sleep on the streets, dirty and hungry, in a ditch somewhere. And so that's why Asia for us. But also... Also because Jesus said things like this. In Matthew 25, 35-40, Jesus uh, was speaking and He said, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. He said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And he said, I was in prison and you came to me. And basically those on the other side of this story respond to the king, respond to Jesus, and they say, like, when? When did we do any of that? When did we do this? When did we do that? 
And the king responds, Jesus responds, says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, I believe that Jesus took this thing personally. And the reason I believe that is because in the story he uses, I was hungry. He uses, you gave me a drink. You came to me. And I believe that if we are ever going to do anything, if we're ever going to be the church that God calls us to be, we have to take it personally. Like we have to, we have to go and, and, and meet people and see people where they are. We have to develop a love and a heart for people. We have to see the hopelessness of people. We have to see the possibility of people. We have to see the potential of people if we just give them Jesus. So I believe Jesus took it personally, and so I believe we're called to take it personally, church. And I believe when we take this good news personally, when we take it seriously, when we step out in faith, God will do more than we can ever ask or think. So this morning I want to talk about Jesus' command for missions quickly and and I want, to talk, I want to start out by talking about some of Jesus' last words. Because our last words are important, right? I mean, you hear like people on their deathbed, they talk to their loved ones, and their last words are something that is cherished, something that's remembered, something that's written down and passed down. If you had the opportunity to choose exactly what you would say last to the people who meant the most to you, what would you say? I mean, you'd say important things, wouldn't you? I believe Jesus said important things. And Jesus knew that he would ascend, church, right? Jesus knew that he would ascend to the Father. Jesus knew that his time was dwindling. Jesus knew when he would ascend. And so I believe whatever Jesus said last would be some pretty important things. So let's look at one of those. If I can, okay. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But you will receive power. Can you say that with me, church? Power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Let me say it in Mississippi talk. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come up on you. Like up on you. Like not down the street or around the corner, not just in this building, though He's here, not just through your streaming, though He's there. The Holy Spirit comes up on us when we get saved. Isn't that good news? It's not just somebody that we got to cry out to and, and they might be busy. The Holy Spirit is up on, up in us, giving us power to do whatever Jesus says that we're to do next. Jesus tends to do this. He sets us up. He sets the disciples up. He gives them like a, it's going to be okay statement. Like you're going to have power. The Holy Spirit's up on you. Don't worry about it. And then he challenges them. And so Jesus finishes the sentence and he says, and you will be my witnesses. Does anybody have a Bible version? I know there's a lot of Bible versions. Does anybody have a Bible version that reads, you ought to be my witnesses? You could be my witnesses. You might be my witnesses. You may just happen to get to be my witnesses someday if you've got the right stuff. Does anybody have a Bible? Come on, let's throw them out. 
You will be my witnesses. It's a command from a king. It's not you ought to be, you should be, you might be, you could be, if you've got the right education, the right upbringing, if you were born in the right area of the country, if everybody around you has always been Christian, if you surrendered at eight years old to be a missionary. No. If you surrender at 80 years old to be a missionary, God is with you and for you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I love that it's an and and not an or. Because if it were an or, we'd say, well, we could just stay right here in our comfort zone. We could love on the people around us. We can just smile at people at the grocery store and feel like we are being witnesses. But he says, and. He says, we're meant to be witnesses here in this community, in this city, in this state, in this region, in this country, and then all around the world everywhere. How do we do that? That's... That's dangerous, isn't it? Like That's scary, isn't it? Because that might mean that we step outside of our comfort zones. But listen, Jesus stepped outside of his comfort zone. Jesus was a missionary from heaven. So he could make us missionaries for heaven. Let me say it again. Jesus came as a missionary from heaven to make you and me missionaries for heaven, church. And if Jesus was a missionary, and he's meant to make us missionaries, then that means it's a command. That means we don't have a choice. That means that wherever you are in whatever situation you're in, in whatever you've been specifically called to do within this command, man, we're meant to step into that, and our lives will go better if we do step into that. We get to be a, a part and see what God's doing when we do step into that. And that's scary, isn't it? I mean, how do we do all that? Let me tell you, there is power in the name of Jesus. And that power can do more through you than you could ever imagine. We see the power of Jesus and not long after Acts 1.8, Jesus kind of makes this statement and then Jesus ascends to the Father and then the Holy Spirit comes and Pentecost happens and thousands of people get saved and there's all this tongue of fire talk, which is cool. I, you know, I like to imagine that as I'm looking out at you. Um, there's all this tongue of fire stuff that's cool and then the Holy Spirit's there and the Holy Spirit empowers them and people are hearing the gospel in their own languages and they're looking at Peter and all these guys and they're going, they're just normal like fishermen. How, how is this happening? And people get saved by the thousands, right? Isn't that incredible? Wouldn't you like to be there in that moment? And then Peter walks away from this moment, this high point, this wow, what's God going to do next? And he's walking in Acts 3, he's walking towards a gate called Beautiful. But there's something laying in front of the gate that's not maybe what most of us would consider beautiful. You remember? In front of this gate called Beautiful laying in the dirt, there's a man who's never been able to walk. There's a beggar, and as the people go past through this gate called Beautiful, and they go towards the temple to be like super holy, most people just walk on by, and they don't even look at this poor beggar at the gate. And Peter could have missed him. 
like Peter came off of this moment of Pentecost. Man, I just want to get to the temple and praise the Lord. But Peter does something different because he's been, he's been, he's been with Jesus. And he understands that we're meant to see people and see their need and love people and feel their need and get involved in their need. And so Peter stops and he looks at him and he says to the beggar, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man who's never walked jumps to his feet. <laughs> Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see that? I, I'm not sure that this is in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure the first cartwheel, the first backflip may have been done that day. That guy's pretty fired up, right? Like he's pretty excited. Peter was excited. This guy's world just changed. There's power in the name of Jesus, church. And that power gives us the power to do more. To love people better. To serve people better. To give hope to the hopelessness in this world. And we know this name, right? I mean, we call out to Him in our times of need. We call out to Him for our salvation, right? Even an unreached people, our, our, our lost people, even the atheist among us, if they're in the middle of a car crash, will call out for somebody to help. God, whoever you are. But I mean, what if people don't know this name? What if people don't know the name of Jesus that they are meant to call out to for salvation? I can tell you right now that there are people on this planet that don't know the name of Jesus and won't ever hear it unless we, as a church, go and serve and give and love and pray like nobody else. There's about 7 billion people on the planet today. And the statistics tell us that about 3 billion plus of those people are considered unreached with this good news, unreached with this gospel. And those are big numbers. Those are scary numbers. Like those are unfathomable numbers. I can't even imagine that many people, right? And unless you're a mathematician in the room, you probably can't either. So let me break it down. With 7 billion people on the planet and 3 billion considered unreached, if I just step here and I put out my arm and just over your shoulder, ma'am, Everybody on this side of the room, congratulations. You have access to the gospel. If you're watching at home, everybody on the left side of your living room has access to this good news. You have a church down the street. You have a Bible in your language. You have a person that can tell you about the hope that is only found in Jesus. I'm sorry you don't. Those of you on the right side of the living room, I'm sorry you don't. And the truth of the matter is, you absolutely probably never will. You'll be born, you'll live your whole lives, you'll die before you ever once hear the name of Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. And so these people will never hear this good news unless those of us on this side of the room get involved, get on mission, get giving, get going, get praying, get serving. Unless we care, unless we take it personally like Jesus did, like Jesus does. 
There's a place called Pashupati in Nepal, funny name. And it's a big Hindu temple complex that sits on the banks of the Bhagamati River that runs through the middle of the Kathmandu Valley. And if you ever go to Nepal with me, we'll stand on the banks of that river and we'll look across at the other side at this big, massive, thousands of different little temples, temple complex. It's over a thousand years old. There's people worshiping gods and goddesses that we know are absolutely false right now. There. And we'll stand on the bank of that river and we'll wear a mask like this. Um, actually, I would say we were maskers before masking was cool. And we'll stand on the banks of that river and we'll look across the river and you'll see concrete pillars jutting out into the river. You'll see sticks and straw piled up on these pillars. And if you wait there just a few minutes with me, you'll see a body being carried out by loved ones, wrapped in cloth. You'll see this body get laid on top of these sticks and straw, and a man will step forward with a torch and set the straw on fire, and the straw begins to burn, and the smoke goes up, and the sticks begin to burn, and the smoke gets darker, and the body begins to burn eventually, and the smell gets stronger, thus the mask. And I'll look at you and I'll tell you that that person was alive less than 24 hours before, according to Hindu custom. And the truth of the matter is, the likelihood that they ever heard of Jesus one time is very slim. And that wakes us up. I mean, hopefully that shakes us up to the fact that 24 hours before we could have told them about Jesus, somebody could have come to them, somebody could have shared this good news. I talk a lot about sharing the gospel in here, but listen, if you're in this room or if you're watching online and you have not accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, you're in the same boat as the person being placed on that funeral pyre right now because you're destined for a place that Jesus described as a place of burning and gnashing of teeth, evil and brokenness and hopelessness. So if you're here today in this room or you're watching online, I, I, I don't believe God messes up. I don't believe there are any accidents. See, I believe that God worked through our story to take us step by step, to lead us by the hand, to lead us to the place that we are today. And listen, I believe that Jesus is leading you to this place for this moment. If you've not accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, listen, it's not tough. It's by grace and grace alone, as we talked about this morning, as we sang out to the Lord this morning. This good news is for you. Listen, Jesus came as a missionary from heaven, and He came down and He lived a perfect life that I can't live that we can't live, that none of us have lived. I've messed up and messed up and continue to mess up. But God had a plan. You see, what separates us from God is sin and the brokenness within each of us. And we like to put on a good face, but the truth of the matter is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because God is perfect and we are not. And His perfection and our imperfection are separated by a great chasm. And Jesus came to live a life that we couldn't live, a perfect life that we couldn't live. And He died a death that He didn't deserve, but He gave Himself willingly for us. 
so that we might be saved. So that in faith in Him, by His grace, in His mercy, in His goodness, we could have that gap put together. Jesus could stand in the gap and say, this one's mine. And so it's by faith that we're saved. So if you're here today, if you're watching online, listening, I want to tell you that it's not some fancy thing that you have to do. It's not even a special prayer that, you know, if you say this three times, you're good. <laughs> but if you're just in your spirit, you say, God, I believe. I am broken. I've messed up. I'm not good enough. But you are. I believe that Jesus gave it all for me. Listen, I want to tell you, you can walk from death to life. You can move from, from, from evil for eternity to good and great and beauty for eternity. And so if you're, if you're here today and you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, man, I, I implore you to talk to somebody at the church. Just say, listen, I made that decision. If you're watching online and you've made that decision, post it in the comments. Say, Pastor Stephen, I want to talk. If that's you, man, this is your day. If that's the only reason I'm standing up here this morning, this is your day. If you've already accepted Jesus as your Savior, a place called Pashupati has to shake us, church. It has to move us to action. Because there's a verse in Romans 10 13 through 15 that reads, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that good news? How then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? Church, it says, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Church, send me. Send my family, send my wife, send my kids. Send us. As a missionary, I get to stand on stages like this and say that to churches across the country. But I also am I'm aware enough to know that with three billion people on the planet that need Jesus so desperately, and many more that are still unsaved that have heard of Jesus before, not about us. It's not just us. Because if I call out and say, send us, and it's just about us, that's definitely not going to be enough. Short of God doing something real miraculous. So church, send anybody. Send your mom, your dad, your grandmother, your grandfather, your sister, your brother, your kids, your grandkids. Send your pastors. Send the people that will go on short-term mission trips with us when all this COVID stuff is over. Send us. And go with us. And pray for us. And give so that people can go. So church, as I wrap up this morning, I want to want to challenge you to write a blank check. Pastor is not in the room, so he didn't fall out of his chair when a missionary said, write a blank check. <sighs> That's good. When a missionary says, write a blank check, people get nervous. They shift their wallets a little. But I'm not saying write a blank check to me or to Mana Worldwide. 
I'm asking you not to write a blank check to me or Manna or this church even, but to write a blank check to God. To do what I did in 2012 and say, whatever you want me to do, God, I will do it. I mean, whatever you want me to, wherever you want me to go, God, I will go. And whatever you want me to give, God, I will give. And maybe the three most important words on the slide are no strings attached. Because we like to attach a lot of strings. God, whatever you want me to do, yes. Wherever you want me to go, yes. Whatever you want me to give, yes. And I'm going to believe that as I step out in faith, as I step over fear and step out in faith, that God, you are good, that you have a plan that's much bigger than my plan, and that one of these days the miracle that I see come from that first step of faith will be something incredible that will make it all worth it. There's a missionary named William Borden that went as a missionary years ago. And he died on the field, I believe it was in Egypt, and in his journal afterwards they found written, no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. Church, may that be our story. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness, your mercy. God, thank you for the grace that you have placed upon us and give to us so that we might be saved. God, if there are people here today watching online or sitting in this room, God, who have not cried out to you, who have never called out your name. Father, I pray that today will be the day that they will do that. God, whether they want to sit in their chair or or come up here to the stage or whether they just want to hit their knees in their living room or whether they they just want to in their spirit say, God, I am yours and you are mine. I believe. God, I pray that you will move us to action, that we may be do something Christians, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, that we may step out in faith when you call us and command us to step out in faith towards people, to give hope and love to people. Father, I thank you for allowing me to stand before people today. Though I am broken, 